0: When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Belgrade alight. Today is the 13th of July, 2014, and around this time in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Once news broke on the evening of Friday the 10th of July that Serbia's beloved Russian statesman Nikolai Hartwig had died while on site at the Austrian embassy, it seemed only reasonable to cry foul. Certainly, the Austrian ambassador to Serbia, Gisel von Gieselingen, who had been conversing with Hartwig as he slipped out of consciousness and died, was recreated without much difficulty in Serbian popular imagination as a secretive assassin who had finally succeeded in luring the noble Serbophile to his death. The Serbian press had a field day with the story, especially as it emerged that Giesel had refused the Serb police access to the scene of Hartwig's death. Why would he do such a thing if not to cover his tracks? Justice would at least be served, one assumed, because Hartwig's daughter, Ludmilla, was on the case and had smelled rat the moment she arrived on scene. Gisel, of course, had informed her of the event immediately and had urged her arrival so as to take suspicion off himself. It was only a matter of time before the smoking gun was found, and that those responsible for offing the defender of Slavic and Serb liberty would be brought to justice. As you can see, it's not that hard to imagine the atmosphere in Belgrade of excited citizens, aghast and grief stricken that the Russian allies' ambassador, who approved such a boon to their fortunes, was now dead. Who else would have to gain so much from the event as the Habsburgs themselves? While incognito, seated at a barber's chair the next day, on Saturday, the 11th of July, Gisel von Giselingen overheard a conversation between two Serbs, conducted in the utmost sincerity. As one Serb told another, that Kiesel has brought an electric chair from Vienna, which causes the immediate death of anyone who sits down on it and leaves not the slightest trace. Ironically, while it was so hard for Serbia's allies to believe in the suspicions regarding the assassination of Franz Ferdinand on the 28th of June, reasoning that it was the act of a misguided anarchist, the death of Hartwig was suspected from the outset by virtually every level of Serb society of being the result of Habsburg foul play. The response of the Serbian citizens was to organize anti-Austrian demonstrations all over Belgrade, to capitalize on the popular rage over Hartwig's death. These demonstrations were at their most vociferous on Sunday the 12th of July, but the previous day on Saturday the 11th, Serb press had already made numerous attacks on Austrian integrity. This weekend of assaults against Austrian honor, combined with the recent memory of the celebrations of the Serb national holiday on the 28th of June, as Serb citizens embraced each other, overjoyed at the news of Franz Ferdinand's death, and foreign officials unnervingly reported the sight back home, seemed like a severe poke in the ribs to Habsburg prestige, and meant the tensions between the two states were still at an all-time high two weeks after the assassination. Giesel made a point of calling in a notable Italian diplomat who had been present while Hartwig entertained his guests on the night of the 28th of June. From the conversation these two men had, Giesel was able to piece together the facts. Contrary to what he had told the Austrian ambassador, the flag at Hartwig's legation had been prevented from flying at half-mast. Similarly, Hartwig had in fact played a bridge game while in high spirits with his guests on the 28th of June, and made the scathing remark that this means the extinction of the Habsburg race, when news of Ferdinand's death reached him. All of this confirmed the rumours. Hartwig had lied to Giesel. His supposed sincere condolences that he had finally addressed towards Giesel on the night of his death were disingenuous in the extreme, and it seemed that, far from unhappy at the event, the Russian had seen it as a good opportunity to play a celebratory game of bridge, Giesel lost no time informing Berchtold of the fact that Hartwig had lied to his face. The emerging picture of the Russian ambassador to Serbia was gradually reducing the sympathy Vienna had for him as a whole. Soon they would be the ones, not grieving as Hartwig had refrained from doing two weeks earlier. Hartwig's funeral would be notable though in that it took place amidst a grieving Serbian, not Russian, crowd. Nikolai Hartwig, as a nod to his service for the country and towards its citizens' affinity towards him, was to be buried in Serbia, a unique event in itself, but sure to command both Russian and Austrian attention, as the funeral would surely put yet more fire under the Serbs. While the service was held among the backdrop of national outpouring of grief, back in Vienna, Leopold von Berchtold, Austria-Hungary's foreign minister, had just been contacted by his ambassador in Berlin, who had informed him of German urges for harsh and urgent action against Serbia. Ambassador Zajani reiterated to Berchtold that Germany desired speed, but this time he backed it up with the claim that both His Majesty Kaiser Wilhelm and all other responsible personages wanted Austria to make a clean sweep of the revolutionary conspirator's nest in Serbia once and for all. This definite language seems to have spurred Berchtold on, or at least made him determined to again approach the issue of the Hungarian minister-president Stefan Tisa and his blocking of such resolute action for a number of reasons which, Berchtold believed, had more to do with Hungary than the genuine Habsburg interest. While he was buoyed by the German backing, Berchtold had further reason to be confident. On Friday the 10th of July, the chief counsel at the Bauplatz had been sent to Sarajevo to fill out a legal dossier on the crime of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand on the 28th of June. Berchtold had eagerly awaited the findings of the report, which promised to summarise all conclusions arrived at so far, and present the Austrian government with a tool they could use to justify their actions. Mainly, though, Berchtold reasoned, it could be used against Teese's argument for diplomatic rather than military actions against Serbia. Berchtold had no doubt in the back of his mind hoped that the report would provide the smoking gun that he could use to finally end Teaser's stalling and ferment a solid Habsburg foreign policy. He was informed that night, on Sunday the 12th of July, that the report was finally complete and could be collected the following morning on the 13th. It was time to establish the truth at last. Dr. Friedrich von Riesner was the section counselor. Tasked with assessing Serbian compliance in the June 28th assassination, though officially his purpose was to publish a legal dossier on the event. By travelling to the scene of the crime, Feistner examined the evidence and checked some of the pieces that did not fit. Particularly of note were the Blackhand agents themselves. How had they gotten across the border without the aid of some serious VIPs in the Serb government? Berktauld had instructed him to leave no stone unturned. Not only did Berchtold want the suspicions of Habsburg government vindicated, but he also required in his hands legal proof to justify whatever belligerent actions may result from it. Berktauld was hoping to use Wiesner's findings to persuade Tiza that Serbia had been compliant to an indecent degree and that stiff action was thus necessary. The report, in the end, was both a disappointment and a success for Burchtold. While it could not categorically state that the Serbian government had ordered the hit, it could uphold that it was beyond reasonable doubt that the original plot had been hatched in Belgrade, and that Major Tankosic, co-founder of the Black Hand as it happened, was responsible for lacing the assassins with bombs, brownings, ammunition, and cyanide of potassium to swallow. The dossier also established that Princep and others had been secretly smuggled across the border by Serbian officials. Feisner's report did not contain legal proof of Serb guilt. It did not yet understand, or really know of, Dragutin Dmitrievich, or his role in the plot as the burly apis. Furthermore, it spent more time analysing lesser organisations within Serbia, rather than focusing on the black hand and its nature of influence on Serb government. However, the report was enough for Berchtold to produce Dutiza, because it emphasised in the kind of official lawyer language as facts what many in Habsburg society had only suspected through rumour, that the assassins had been supplied and moved by a high-level major in Serbia. From such a base, Bergdahl believed, it would be easier to further gather evidence unilaterally establishing Serbian guilt. He thus couldn't produce this dossier to foreign observers as proof of Serbian guilt, but such a smoking gun could be found in time. What he could do was bring it to Tisa and point to the existing facts that could be connected by accurate speculation. Vienna, in fact, had come close to the truth. Their success in acquiring Tankosic's name would surely have horrified the high levels of the Black Hand, convinced as they were of their own secrecy and clandestine nature. Though Berchtold saw the Major merely as a figure repeatedly named by those he had recruited, Tankosic was in fact a co-founder of the Black Hand itself, and was perhaps closer than anyone else to Dragutin Dmitrievich, whose beastly reputation in Vienna had nonetheless not yet been encountered in the investigation. It was Tankasic who had recruited the three youths responsible for getting the closest to the assassination. Gavrilo Princip, therefore, was his star pupil. In the eventual ultimatum that would be drawn up, the arrest of those Serbs suspected of subversive acts against the Habsburg Empire would be established as one of the Ten Demands, though his true identity, as the Black Hand's second-in-command, would never be established. When Dr. Friedrich von Wiesner later talked to a historian about the dossier, he noted that at the time, though the guilt of the Serbian government was legally not acquired, it was his opinion, as well as the view of most of his colleagues, that Serbia was to blame. The historian that Weisner talked to records that he said, Personally, Weisner recalled he was at the time quite convinced by the evidence secured at the investigation of the moral culpability of the Serbian government for the Sarajevo crime, but as the evidence was not of the kind which a court of law would accept, he had been unwilling to have it used in the formal case against Serbia. He had, he said, made this clear on his return to Vienna. What this recounting reveals is that Wiesner had a hunch. It was a strong hunch, but it was still just a hunch, and he didn't want to have his feelings used to justify action based on this hunch. Too much was at stake, Dr. Friedrich Weisner no doubt saw, to present hunches as facts, and so, while he surely could have capitalized upon the prevailing mood in the capital and presented the dossier as evidence of Serb complicity, he kept his opinions to himself and left specific instructions detailing that, while the bank of evidence was building and appeared to suggest Serb complicity, there was not yet enough in this bank to act. For Berchtold, though, what Wiesner gathered was enough. He could add this dossier to the fact that German support had again filtered through, and to the weekend of anti-Hausberg demonstrations in Belgrade, to hopefully persuade Stefan Tiese that the time had come to act. With all this ammo, Berchtold scheduled a meeting with the Hungarian Minister-President for the next morning of July 14th. Within that meeting, Berchtold hoped to bring the most ardent opposition to his side. It was his greatest chance to do so, and, as Berchtold had been made aware by his German ally, time was running out. It was over two weeks since the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, with every day that passed, the justification for war, in the eyes of Europe... Would seem weaker and weaker. However, as future events will reveal, while the opinion within the Entente powers upheld that Austria had cynically calculated the best opportunity for delivering the ultimatum, the journey that led towards the delivery of that ultimatum was not a deliberate, but a chaotic, almost comically so, farce. Which, though it was viewed to be an example of Austro-Hungarian dishonesty at the time, would in retrospect be upheld As the most apparent symptom of an empire crippled by a sickness of internal stalling and bureaucratic, coupled with ethnic mismanagement, which by summer 1914 had spiraled out of control. Planning for your next trip?